Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, the home of cycling. Sponsored by Zwift, where fun is fast. No Harry Roubaix this weekend, postponed unfortunately because of the pandemic until October. Uh, instead, this week we're bringing you a bonus episode of the Recycle podcast by Eurosport. And I'm very happy to say joining me is the protagonist of this week's edition, Magnus Baxted. Uh, Maggie, the 2004 edition of Harry Roubaix, uh, famously. Uh, the high point of your career, I think it's fair to say. Um, and you, yeah. had a, you had a chat with you had a chat with Felix Lowe um, for us a, a few weeks ago um, in the making of this podcast. A real pleasure to have you with us. Um, so thank you again for joining us. No problem at all. Um, I mean, uh, like I say, it, it is it unfair to say it made your career? That well, year? it kind of it kind of um, restarted my career in a way because you know I, I won a stage in a tour back in '98 and then. Had a load of um, crashes and injuries and illnesses going on for a few years, and and the 2004 season really got me back up there where I I deemed I belonged, and you know it was um, it was nice to, to to get back into the top level of racing again. So um, yeah, I think, but you know, it's definitely the biggest win of my career without a shadow of a doubt. So I think you said you you always ate, breathed, slept, dreamt about winning Roubaix. That was yeah. that was for you the the the, the sort of the driving force. Yeah, ever since I saw the first edition, you know, for me, the first edition, um, you know, watching Gilbert de Clos-Lassalle, um, it, it became an obsession. Um, went down there and got to ride the cobblestones of uh, Roubaix in actually one of my first ever elite races. And um, for some reason, I just I just loved every minute of it. And um, yeah, in 98, I got to, to ride it the first time and I finished seventh in that year and I remember putting my bike up against the truck after it, and I said to uh, our, our general manager of the team, "I'll win this one day before I hang up my bike." Um, and it became that obsession to to do so. And you went toe to toe with a legend in order to do it as well until the final seven <laughs> k. Yeah, Johan Muse. It was um, quite a few of the, the the big guys still still in the mix there. Um, you know, we had. I think lucky for us all that day that Van Petergem had a bit of a, um, a mechanical uh, about 5k before we got across the carry four, um, which sort of opened up a gap for for us to to really have a go at it. But um, you know, with me saying that in that group, um, I knew it was going to be difficult to uh, to beat him in a straight up sprint on on the velodrome, and um, lo and behold, you know, he manages to hit hit a stone and punctured and. All of a sudden, it was just me, Roger Hammond, Cancellara, and Tristan Hoffman left going into the velodrome, and obviously, my odds uh, got quite a lot better from that moment on. We're talking on the day that Casper Asgren has become the first Dane since Rolf Sorensen to yeah. win the Tour of Flanders. Rolf Sorensen was your manager that day. He was, I think yeah. Right in saying, yeah, um, and you'd have had a chat beforehand, and and not necessarily expecting to lead the team. Um, but am I am I right in saying that Rolf said, "Right, Maggie, everything's on you today." 
Um, well, Rolf was my personal manager at the time, um, and you know, I still remember him asking me at the uh, at the start of the race. You know, he said, "My my dad is a bit of a betting man. He's asking who to who to put his money on," and I straight up said, "Me." And Rolf kind of looked at me and said, "What to win?" And I said, "Yeah." And I I just had that feeling that morning that everything was was right. Everything felt right. And obviously, then we had a team meeting in the. Uh, in the bus about an hour before the start and sitting in there with the likes of Andrea Tafi, previous winner. We had Fabio Baldato who's been close on a number of occasions, um, you know, absolute legend of a rider. Um, and all eyes were turned on, on me that, you know, we were looking after me for that day. And I just, you know, soaked up that sort of trust and, um, the fact that they, they, they thought I was going to be able to win it. And obviously with the feelings I had, it was, it was. I was so looking forward to that day. Yeah, you felt like you were uh, sort of gliding across the cobbles. I think you said that that week. When yeah, you, you know, the every, recons you'd done. Everything felt right, um, and even the early parts of of the race. You know, I, I didn't put put my wheels in the wrong spot at any point. Um, we got out of the for, uh, forest of Arenberg, and you know, I had a couple of moments in there that sort of left me some just behind the the, the front front split. I rode across to it. Um, relatively easily uh, and I got got to the front group and Baldato was in there and you know he came back and sort of asked me you know how, how, how are you feeling how are you doing and I said I don't think the mechanic put a chain on my bike today <laughs> and he just looked at me and and said really I went yeah I um, I haven't touched your pedals yet and and from that moment on he said look I'll, I'll cover everything you just look after the big guns and Let's make sure that we get to the carry four, and and you're in a, in a, in a good enough position in in this group to uh, to do your job. And so that final four, so it's it's yourself, Cancellara, Hoffman, uh, and Roger Hammond, yeah. coming into the velodrome. Um, and you know, you by that point, you know that Johan Museo is is out the back. Yeah. He's not going to catch you. No. At that point, are you sizing the other guys up, thinking, okay, if I play this right, I'm pretty sure I've got this? Because you used to train with Roger Hammond. Didn't you? Yeah, you used to live, we, with Roger we used to live together. Yeah, so. He was he was probably my my biggest worry in that group because I know how fast Roger is and we've done so many sprints in various different forms and shapes throughout the years in training. I knew exactly what he's capable of and I was still quite confident, but um, I wanted to open up and do a relatively long sprint because I, I I thought I had I still had the legs and uh, as soon as I go, Roger goes as well and I basically get squashed against the inside of the track. And for one reason or another, I, I just, I didn't panic. I just held my, held my spot down there knowing that Roger's going to have to launch the, the sprint and go over the top of Cancellara was in front of us. And as soon as he does that, Cancellara is going to drift up in the banking somewhat to, uh, to keep, get Roger to go a little bit further around him. And, um, and that would leave me with enough space on the inside to come on, through. On the, on and, the coat yeah. And that's exactly what happened. And I mean, you know, I've done enough research and, Watch every every sprint there is on videotape. I think for for that before that particular day, and I knew that that was still a very much a possibility. So I, I stuck to it and kind of gambled a little bit that that was going to happen. You must have to be incredibly disciplined to be able to do that. I mean, that's real sort of poker face stuff. Being able to hold your nerve until the final few hundred meters of Paris Bay, I and mean, that 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 in itself was that a sort of out of body experience for you. To be honest with you, turning on to the velodrome was an out-of-body experience because the first couple of times I got on there, the, the roar of the crowds in there is deafening. 
But that particular day, I turned on to the velodrome. I could hear the noise of the tires against the concrete. I could hear every gear change, any brakes touching the rims. It was just, it was completely dead silent. And I, I could just hear the, the rest, the other guys in, in the group with me. Proper senses heightened kind of stuff. Uh, completely. Yeah. And, and I don't know, it, it was kind of that unconscious uh, move to to stay cool and to to wait for the for the gap to open and you know I think if you if you prepare enough and you 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 look at these kind of scenarios enough then it it kind of becomes second nature and I think one of the key elements of that track is to remember it's not a track race you are allowed to go on the Cote d'Azur and go underneath the rider which in a track race you wouldn't be able to um, and Which I think a lot of people watching that sprint and watching it back now, yeah, um, you sort of think, "Oh, hold on a sec, is that is that is that legal?" But that I mean, that's one of the first things that occurred to me. But you, having done your research, you knew exactly, and, and presumably most riders well. Yeah. But then, then again, maybe it's an easy thing to forget after such an attritional race. Yeah, it definitely would be. Um, but but you know, you just gotta read up on it, drill it into your head that that this is what it is. It's a road race. It's not a track race, and. I think the more you prepare, the, the the it kind of becomes second nature to you. And I think for me that day was it was just a culmination of a couple of years where I wasn't able to or allowed to race it because I was in too small a team and we didn't get an invite. And I, it just drove me to do more and more research and just make sure that when I came back, I was going to be be back with a bang. And mm. um, yeah. It, happy to pull it off you yeah. some lovely scenes afterwards as well with uh, the sort of journalists thronging around you yeah um, and, and you, you had a few choice words to say <laughs> but um, I, th I think afterwards too um coming back to defend your title the following year with basically a broken arm yeah um, and coming fourth which yeah. <laughs> which in itself to me i mean that's almost even more of an achievement um than, yeah. than winning the thing in the first place yeah, and that must have been excruciating. It was, it was, it wasn't a, it wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, and I've, unfortunately, I crashed in Ghent Vevelgem uh, on the Wednesday, and um, I didn't ride my bike outdoors until Saturday when the team kind of said, "Look, you're going to have to get out on the road if you're going to race on Sunday." And I just basically gripped my teeth and and said, "Yeah, everything is fine." When I rode on, rode out, and as soon as the team car came past, I sort of put my hand on the handlebars as soon as it went away. I took it off there and just rode one handed. Um, strapped it up with enough tape to to, to hold everything in, in in place and um, hit the first cobblestone section that year and um, yeah I was basically in tears going across it so I thought the best way to do this really is get enough of a big hit um, on it to get the adrenaline to kind of shut down the pain and looked for the biggest pothole I could find and put my front wheel down it um, and after that it was it was a lot better. Oh, I, I just, I just can't imagine that you see, you can see the vibrations going through the bikes. You can see the vibrations going through the riders um, on, on any cobbled section on any classics race when you're watching today. I, mean, I, I just cannot imagine what that must have been like for you. Yeah, like I said, after after that big hit and it, it sort of the adrenaline kicked in and the you know the you, you just I, I didn't well I obviously felt it, but it wasn't anywhere near as bad as as what I thought it was going to be. Um, unfortunately, I think I, I sort of lost a little bit of, um, that being ready for the race by not being able to ride my bike properly the days leading into it. Mm. And, um, what did you do afterwards? What did you do your arm afterwards? I mean, well, we went back and obviously had more x-rays to make sure everything was still in one place <laughs> and, and done in, the, in the right damage. place and then done any more damage and took it, took a few weeks off the bike and, 
yeah, nah, just one of those things that you used to do back in the day. Is Paris-Roubaix still your favourite race now as a, as a, as a commentator? Um, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt. That is, you know, the holy Sunday for me. Um, always look forward to that, that, that day. And, um, you know, with, with memories and with excitement, watching the racing going ahead. And to be honest with you, like right now, I, I cannot wait to see the first women's Paris-Roubaix as well. I think it's going to be a phenomenal weekend of racing once we get it in, in, in October. And I have to ask you the, the question you've been asked a million times already <laughs> in the past year or so. Uh, well, we see the first father-daughter double. We've seen the first father-son double at Flanders with Audrey van der Poel and Matthew van der Poel. Yeah. Well, we see the Baxteds with, with Eleanor doing the same thing come October. <laughs> Coming October, I'm not sure if it's, I think it's still probably a little bit too early. She's coming back from a broken leg, um, about to start racing any week now. And um, yeah, I mean, you never know what's going to happen, but I still think it's going to take her a few years to sort of find a, find a feet in the pro peloton and, and get, get to that very top level um but once she's there then i can't see why she wouldn't be able to to win it i think she's got all the all the right attributes as a rider to to be able to um to, to challenge for a race like that so um yeah we shall see what the future holds we shall maggie thanks ever so much for joining us uh, real pleasure to look back on your 2004 win with you here's the episode in full maggie thanks again thank you Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, the podcast that goes beyond the history books to remember the greatest riders and races from the peloton's past. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In episode number five of our third season, we look back on the 2004 Paris-Roubaix, when Swedish powerhouse Magnus Backstead denied Johan Museo the perfect cobbled swan song and a record-equaling victory in the Lion of Flanders' last major race. In fact, the only person who backed Magnus Backstead to win that year's dramatic edition of the Hell of the North was Backstead himself. When Matt Heyman tore up the script and denied Tom Bonin the outright record of five Paris-Roubaix titles in 2016, there was a sense that the veteran Australian had not only played an absolute blinder, but that he had also altered the course of cycling history. Twelve years earlier, and before Bonin had even lifted his first cobblestone, another Belgian was knocking on history's door before hanging up his own cycling shoes. Trailing Roger de Vlaminck's record of four Paris-Roubaix wins, Johan Museo, whose career had almost come to a premature end after shattering his kneecap in the Aremberg Forest in 1998, hoped to draw level with his compatriot in his last major race. Museo was just seven kilometres from the finish and riding in the decisive five-man move when his chances blew up, along with his tyre, handing the initiative to Magnus Baxted. The Swedish outsider duly delivered on a day that he felt so strong he even questioned whether there was a chain on his bike. Winning the Queen of the Classics was by no means the only victory of Baxter's long career, but it was indisputably his crowning glory. As a lead-out man, Baxter had helped Australia's Stuart O'Grady to glory on several occasions. He was also a national time trial champion, 
a victor in Le Samin, and a Tour de France stage winner by the time his stars aligned and he came home first in the Roubaix Velodrome, ahead of Tristan Hoffman, Roger Hammond, and a relative newcomer named Fabian Cancellara. It was a victory that no one except the rider himself and his Alessio Bianchi team saw coming, especially when all the signs pointed towards Museo going out with a bang in what was a tense 102nd edition of the race. But a puncture for Museo, as he followed Backstead in the final cobbled section, ended the chances of a fairy tale retirement for the Quickstep star, before Backstead's belief and homework paid off in the velodrome. It's a topic Backstead, who has made himself a home in Wales, could talk about until the cows come home. Less so the man who was denied the opportunity to contest the finale after fate dealt him a duff hand. For two reasons, Museo explains. It was the last monument that I was riding, my last race, and I also had bad luck at the end. So it wasn't on my side, but anyway, I did a great Roubaix. I was in the breakaway with the winners, some great riders, big riders, and young riders. I had a chance to win, but the puncture decided differently. The puncture and Magnus Baxter. Standing 194 centimetres tall and weighing 90 kgs, Baxter was not your average cyclist. But he was like a runaway freight train once he hit the cobbles at speed. Off the back of seventh place in his debut Paris-Roubaix in 1998, the year of the Mapai clean sweep of the podium that came despite Museo's heavy fall on the Arenberg, Baxter felt reassured that this was a race he could, one year, win. It was always a dream of mine to win Paris-Roubaix since I was 15 or 16 when I watched the race in Sweden for the first time and I saw Gilbert Duclos-Lassalle riding across the cobbles with rock shocks on the front, Baxter says recalling the Frenchman's back-to-back -back victories with state-of-the-art suspension forks in 1992 and 1993. It became that one thing that, to start off, I definitely wanted to be on the start line for. Then, once I got there, after my first one, when I finished seventh, I remember saying to Roger Leger, who was the general manager for Credit Agricole Gan, that I will win this one day before I hang up my bike. And that sort of stuck with me. I always ate, breathed, slept and dreamt about winning Paris-Roubaix. But after his encouraging debut, things did not go as Baxter had planned. He failed to complete two editions either side of a 19th place finish in 2000 that came after he punctured at a critical part of the race. Injuries and illness meant his contract with Credit Agricole was then not renewed forcing the then 27-year-old to drop down from cycling's top tier. At FATKA, the Danish pro-continental equivalent team where Kim Anderson was director sportif, Baxter spent two seasons that he describes as probably the most memorable years in terms of racing and enjoying my time on the bike. The only problem was that the team were not invited to the one race that Baxter still dreamed of winning. Every second Sunday in April in those two years, I didn't want to watch Paris-Roubaix because I just wanted to be there on the start line, he says. But I think that spurred me on even more when I got the opportunity to get back, which was in 2004 with Alessio. I was so much more driven to make amends for the past two years that it turned out the way it did. The two editions of the Hell of the North that Baxter missed saw victories go to the Belgian's Museo 
and Peter van Pietergem, the former soloing to glory in 2002 to notch his third win in the Roubaix Velodrome, and the latter winning a three-up sprint in 2003 against the Italian Dario Pieri and Russia's Vyacheslav Ekimov. The pre-race focus for the 2004 edition inevitably fell upon the impending retirement of the 38-year-old Museo, the so-called Lion of Flanders, hoping to draw level with compatriot Roger de Vlaaminck's record of four wins before riding off into the Flemish sunset. Compatriot van Pietergem, the 34-year-old defending champion, was heavily touted for a second win. But there was also much anticipation surrounding the new generation of Belgian riders, led by Museo's quick-step teammate Tom Bonin, who had joined the Belgian team after an impressive third place in his Roubaix debut for US Postal in 2002, behind Museo and the reliable Swiss rider Stefan Wieseman. Still only 24, Bonin was in fine form that spring after victories at Gent-Wevelgem and E3 Haralbecker. T-Mobile's Wesseman, meanwhile, had won the Tour of Flanders the week earlier, making him one of the riders to watch. Despite coming in second behind Bonin in Gent-Wevelgem, Baxter was relishing his underdog status as he prepared to return to the cobbled roads so dear to his heart. Outsider? I wasn't even on the wide borderline on the books, he recalls. I'd gone well that whole spring. I'd done some really good rides down at Terreno, and I'd always been competitive at the start of that season. An illness put Baxter on the back foot, however, with many people believing that had spelled the end for his classic season. Actually, it probably gave me that little bit of rest I needed before we went into that busy period, he says. Rolf Sorensen, his manager at Alessio Bianchi, was one of those who didn't have high hopes for the Swede as Sunday the 11th of April approached. It wasn't until the morning of the race when he came up and spoke to me and said, who are we betting on today? Baxter rebels in recalling. And I said, me. He said, what, to win? And I said, yeah. The sensations that I had on the cobblestones for the two days prior to the race were just phenomenal. While the Swede, by then 29, had confidence in his legs, he also knew that his Alessio team boasted the formidable Italian duo of Andrea Taffi and Fabio Baldato. Two years after winning the Giro di Lombardia, Taffi had finished runner-up the year Baxter made his Roubaix debut before going one better in 1999. Baldato, meanwhile, had twice finished runner-up in the Ronde van Vlaanderen after finishing second in his Roubaix debut in 1994. In the days that led up to the race, the vibe was good for both Baxted and his team. I was really confident, he says. You know, we had some really good cobble riders on the team, with Taffy and Baldato, and I was just floating around the cobbles with those guys when they went full gas across a couple of sections in training. I was barely touching the pedals. I knew I was really, really good. But was he good enough to be given the nod as team leader? At first, Baxter felt that the team would get behind the veteran Italians, while he would be given a free role as a kind of disruptor. But in the morning, when we were on the bus having the chat, the sports directors said, Right, today, it's everything on Maggie, says Baxter. And I just sort of sat up and got a bit, Oh, okay. 
a bit of added pressure to carry the whole team, especially with those two guys there as well. But at the same time, I think that nudged me another percent or two in the right direction for really wanting to prove that they had made the right decision to back me. Baxter had been in the day's break at the Ronda one week earlier when he says he felt superb the whole day, while testing himself over terrain he admitted was too harsh for someone with his body and build. He had then finished second midweek in Ghent-Wevelgem, where he had raced, in his words, to do a result. It came to a sprint from a reduced group, and I opened up really early because I was coming from behind. There was only Bonin who outclassed me. When guys like Jan Karispu can't come out of my back wheel and around me, that obviously brought me a fair amount of confidence. Both races ticked a box. I knew I could ride hard all day in a long classic. All of these things fell into place and gave me the confidence that I was going to be one of the guys to be reckoned with at Roubaix. 176 riders rolled out of Compiègne for the 261-kilometre-long road to Roubaix, which featured 26 sections of cobblestones for a total of 51.1 kilometres of Parve. It was a cold and dry Sunday, wind battering the peloton mercilessly and helping to whittle down the numbers on the 100-kilometre flat run towards the first cobble section at Troisville. After a few full starts, a group of five formed off the front. The quintet established a five-minute gap on the pack before losing two riders as Museo's super-strong quick-step team wrested control of the bunch. And, as the peloton rattled towards the crucial Arenberg Forest section and the final 95 kilometres of the race, the last of the remaining escapees were brought to heel. So far, so good. That was what was going through Backstead's head after the Swede, bar a couple of heart-in-mouth moments, managed to stay on his bike and out of trouble thanks to a solid shift from Taffy, his guardian angel. I had Taffy sitting next to me, more or less babysitting me, telling me what to do, when not to go, when not to waste any energy. Don't worry, I'll let you know when, and that whole scenario, he says. We went across the first cobblestone sections together. We missed the entry to the first one a little bit, and he told me not to stress, that we'd get back up when we were on the road. Hopefully we had enough firepower to move up when we needed to. The whole way through until the forest was pretty much like that. Then, unfortunately, we lost Andrea to a crash. As the mythical cobbled section of the Arenberg approached, it was the Quickstep and Lotto Domo teams of the two Belgian favourites who gathered on the front of the pack to assert their authority. The lanky German veteran Rolf Aldarg, however, managed to steal a march going onto the trench. With Lotto in pursuit, the Dutchman Leon van Bon and his leader van Pietergem sandwiching the American George Hincapi at the head of affairs. Hincapi, the US postal stalwart, was riding his 10th Paris-Roubaix and had finished in the top 10 in his previous four appearances, twice finishing just short of the podium. Winner of the three days of Dupin earlier in the month, the 31-year-old had finished fourth at Ghent-Wevelgem and clearly had good legs. Losing Taffy in the Arenberg was a setback for Backstead, but it was far from a deal-breaker. After all, Museo had also lost his Dutch teammate Serves Gnarven 
the 2001 winner, to a crash. Still, the Swede now needed to refocus and found himself on the wrong side of a split when other riders and a race motorcycle hit the deck in slippery conditions. After we lost Andrea, I then got caught behind Dario Pieri of Seiko, and because it was quite wet and slick in the forest, I was in that position where, if I moved out of the designated riding line, I knew that that was going to be a really big risk moment, he recalls. So, I was trying to wait for as long as I possibly could before I made the move. A gap had opened up in front of us, but thankfully I had the legs to close it down, and by the time we were on the next section, I was in the mix again with Fabio Baldato. 21 riders formed the lead group after Fabian Cancellara, the Swiss Tyro riding his second Roubaix for Fassa Bortolo, had shown Aldag who was boss in the Arenberg. Cancellara's ubiquity in the cobbled classics, in cycling in general, had yet to take off, and to emphasise his relative unknown status at the time, commentator Phil Liggett didn't recognise the man who left a trail of devastation in his wake. I'm not too sure who this Fassa Bortolo rider is, but I think it's possibly Alberto Ongarato who's setting the pace through the forest, Liggett said, calling the international feed that was broadcast in the US. 18 seconds and many riders passed before a tall figure in baby blue, navy, white and red went by in the wheel of a quickstep rider. Taking the mic from Liggett, the late Paul Sherwin knew only too well who these athletes were. There's Tom Bonin going through, and big Magnus Baxted, a man who could be a big surprise here, said Sherwin. Also in the mix were CSC duo Lars Michelson and Tristan Hoffman, and the Estonian Jan Karispu of AG2R. Belgium's Life Hoster, runner-up behind Wieseman at Flanders, was also there for Lotto, while Museo had two quick-step teammates in Stefano Zanini and rising Belgian star Bonin. Baxter didn't let the stellar company get to him. He might have lost Taffy, but he still had the superb Baldato to rely on, and he felt like he was on a flyer. Fabio came back and asked me how I was feeling, he recalls. At that point, I hadn't touched the pedals yet properly. I somewhat cockily said, you better have a look, because I don't think the mechanic put a chain on my bike. That was just the sensation I had. He was like, you look after Museo, Van Petergem and Wieseman, who were the three super favourites for it. I'll make sure the rest is covered. He was just a machine that day. I think if the roles had been reversed, he'd have been able to win it as well. He was that good. In his mind's eye, Museo and Van Petergem were very much the men to beat if Baxter wanted to realise his childhood dream. Together, they'd won Roubaix three of the previous four years, and Wieseman had just won Flanders, says Baxter. They were the big classic specialists of that time, really. I knew that if any of those three decided to open gaps on me, I had to be there or I'd end up losing out. That's why, if you watch the footage, there were a couple of times where Museo really had a go at it, and I was the first to follow him. When I realised that I could follow Museo without it killing me, I knew that I was on a very, very good day. After an initial post-Arenberg lull, 
Ghent Wevelgem winner Bonin put pedal to Parve with a series of accelerations through sectors 12 and 13 as Quickstep looked to repeat its midweek dominance. Museo's young teammate had compatriot Van Bon in attendance, with Baxted in third wheel. The sight of the Swede on the front of the race was cause for celebration for Phil Liggett in the commentary box. I'm absolutely amazed at Magnus Baxted's great turnaround this season, he said. He's really settled down and he's really full of confidence. He had a great ride in Gent-Wevelgem and a lot of people had his name on their lips as a man who could win this race this year. After Bonin's leg stretching, it was the turn of the Estonian Karispu, who slipped into an enormous gear as he soloed clear of the field through the feed zone. It was left to Bonin and his former US postal teammate Hincapi to lead the chase as they entered the Orshi Pave, with ominous grey rain clouds gathering overhead. The three-time champ ratcheted up the pace to open up a small gap over a Scandinavian alliance of Backstead and Norway's Tor Hushovd in pursuit. Museo's move was not going to be enough to win the race, but it did for Karispu's chances. Once the plucky Estonian was reeled in, Museo sat up and let the other favourites regroup the lion having made it loud and clear just who was the king of the cobblestone jungle. But, far from phased, this prompted a little dig from Baxted, which was countered by Van Bon. Looking back at this busy moment in the race, Baxted admits to feeling a boost by being able to follow Museo's lead. That attack for me was the defining moment of the race, he says. That's when I knew that if he couldn't put me in the box by doing that kind of manoeuvre, and he even had a good draft from a motorbike which couldn't get out of his way, I knew that if I could follow him at that level, then I was definitely in with a shout. With Van Bon and the Dane Frank Hoy the latest attackers to go clear on the Monson Pavel section, Museo was dealt a minor blow when his quickstep teammate Zanini hit the deck at the back of the main group forcing Baxted's lieutenant Baldato to take evasive action. Twice a top 10 finisher in the velodrome, Van Bon had finished fourth at Flanders one week before, three places ahead of CSC's Hoy, making the duo something of a threat to the swelling group 30-odd pursuers around 15 seconds behind. It was here that Roger Hammond started to believe that he could possibly outdo Barry Hoban's 32-year-old record of best finish for a British rider in Roubaix, third place in 1972. Riding only his second Roubaix for the second-tier Belgian team MrBookmaker.com, Hammond came to the front of the main group to tap out tempo along with the likes of Museo, Hincapie and Van Pietergen. I realised after one of the tough Parve sections that I wasn't yet at 100% effort, so I attacked over the top of Museo, the then 30-year-old Hammond later told Cycling News. I looked in his eyes and saw that he knew I was here. So, I attacked again. It wasn't just the Lion of Flanders with whom Hammond enjoyed rubbing shoulders. The pint-sized British jack-in-the-box also found himself in an unlikely scenario of chatting race tactics with the defending champion and the rider ranked number one in the world tour. It's strange when I look back, I almost imagine it in the third person, Hammond told Cyclist magazine. For years afterwards, 
I just remembered the pain of not winning Roubaix in 2004. I felt it was a missed opportunity, but over time, I recall only snapshots of the race. I can remember Peter van Pietergem coming up to me and saying, You're going really well. On the next sector, I'm going to attack. Come with me. This was a guy who had won it the year before and was leading the World Cup, so I felt like a million dollars. Van Bon and Hoy's stock, meanwhile, was plunging. Despite keeping up the pressure ahead of the cavalry, their lead never crept above the 28-second mark, and Hammond's surge would spell the end. Quickstep then took back control when the road widened ahead of the split fifth section of cobbles, with less than 30 kilometres remaining. When Frenchman Christophe Mongin made use of the luxuriously flat tarmac to dart clear, Baxted could rely on his trusty Alessio teammate Baldato to cover the move, as a new five-man break formed with Bonin, the Spaniard Juan Antonio Flescher, and Life Hoster. Lotto Domo's Hoster didn't know it at the time, but when he was pipped by Wieseman a week earlier in Meerbecker, he had just begun his unenviable run of runner-up spots in the Ronde van Vlaanderen. The Belgian would finish second on two more occasions in the next three years to join Sean Kelly with the most bridesmaid finishes, three, without ever winning the Tour of Flanders. With this in mind, it was perhaps with a little precursive irony that Hoster, driving the pace of the five-man leading group on the fifth sector at Cissois, suddenly found his vision impaired by a rogue Flemish flag. The golden Leeuwen flag is a mainstay of any cobbled or Ardennes classic, but one fan had clearly let go of theirs at the wrong time. The flag dropped to the ground, but got stuck in Hoster's derailleur, prompting some quite brilliant bike-handling skills from the Belgian to avoid hitting the deck with an acrobatic skid. Either side of Hoster, Bonin and Flescher were forced to take drastic evasive action, the duo going on to open a small gap on the second part of the sector at Borgel. With Hoster needing to rip the flag from his rear wheel, Hincapi had managed to ride clear of the pursuers and close the gap on Flescher and Bonin as Baldato and Monjan dropped back. In the commentary box, Liggett and Sherwin noted how history was repeating itself as Hincapi and Bonin approached the Comfan on Pevel fourth sector just as they had two years previously as teammates when Hincapi famously crashed into the ditch and Bonin pushed on for a podium finish on his debut. After digging deeper than a miner from the nearby pits in the Arenberg woods, Hoster had managed to rejoin the leaders as the sun started to break through the clouds ahead of the Carrefour de Labre. Who knows what might have happened had Hoster not become a hostage of fate while being laid low by the flag associated with the race he'd never quite win. And so, the riders hit the third and final five-star section of cobbles with 16 kilometres remaining. With the return of his teammate Bonin, Museo decided that the time was ripe to force a definitive selection. The Lion of Flanders had started to shake his mane. Museo has gone around that corner like a man completely and utterly possessed, Sherwin said on commentary. Only four riders, Baxted, Hammond, Cancellara and the Dutchman Tristan Hoffman of CSC were able to follow the Belgian's lead 
with Hincapi, the last man to be distanced, and Van Pietegem being hit by the realisation that he was not going to compete for the spoils. Getting up towards the car four, I knew that I had to be there in the top two or three going into the section, Backstead recalls. Baldato got pulled back just before, and he came and got me and pulled me onto the car four, dropped me on Museo's wheel, and that was it, really. Across the car four, I could feel it stinging. I was really on the limit. As soon as we got out, I knew that I was starting to feel it. But I looked back, and there was just five of us left. That was it. It was just a question of making sure us five riders got to the velodrome. With the outskirts of Roubaix drawing nearer, the five leaders held a 30-second advantage that would be impossible to close. One of them would soon be raising his arms in celebration, although it was still a battle of survival for the uninitiated. As Hammond, the British rider who'd never found himself in such a favourable position in a monument before, would tell cyclist, I remember coming through the Carrefour de Labre, taking every risk I could, riding at 60 kilometres per hour on one of the worst roads in Europe, with the crowd inches away. I thought, I'm dicing with death here, not trying to win a bike race. So came the last proper section of cobbles and the moment that ended one man's career. With seven kilometres remaining, Baxter led the leading quintet through the zigzagging section of cobbles at Hem, characterised by two successive tight 90-degree turns. As was so often the case on these cobbled farm tracks, a thin strip of mud or concrete acts as an apron on either side, offering the riders a momentary balm from the bone-jangling angles in between. But riding on such strips has its own inherent risks, especially if your view of what's ahead is impaired by riding directly behind someone else. It's always difficult to ride on the path, Museo confirms. You avoid the cobbles, but it's also very rough and tough for cyclists. You have more chances to have a puncture than on the cobbles, but it's better than riding on the cobblestones. Riders will always try to find the best way but sometimes you're unlucky. Exiting the second bend, Baxter swung across the cobbles from left to right, joining the path on the side before narrowly avoiding what he recalls being a really big stone. Here, there's a bone of contention, for Museo remembers the tool of his downfall as being a hole. Let's hand the reins back to Paul Sherwin, who was anticipating the tactical tussle ahead. When they come out of this section, they will be facing around 6 kilometers to the finish. Now, there's a very good position where you can attack on the run in to the finish line, and that's with around 5 kilometers to go. It's a slight incline on the outskirts of Hem, and I wonder if that's in the back of Johan Museo's mind. I thought when I looked at him last week at the Tour of Flanders, what Paul thought, we'd never know, because up came the Belgian's hand and the race was turned on its head. Oh, he's got a problem, Sherwin said. A problem for Museo, a back wheel puncture. Liggett soon chipped in as the mechanic from the Mavic support car struggled to change Museo's wheel. These are dramatic pictures. What a way to end your career. The man never shows an expression on his face, but what does he think? Well, Phil, we'd better ask him. 
You know, six kilometers from the finish, it's very short, says Museo. I was one of the favorites. If I had a puncture, they weren't going to wait for me. They were young riders and they did full gas to the finish. So it wasn't possible to get back. Sometimes you have bad luck and that was a bad moment in the race for me. Museo was right. This was not the Tour de France. There was no chance the others were going to wait for the man in the yellow helmet. As Backstead recalls, I heard that puncture noise, looked back, and it was Museo, which obviously didn't hurt my chances. Let's put it that way. Back on his bike, but still grappling with a mechanical issue with his derailleur, Museo soon found himself being passed by his old rival Van Pietegem. He latched onto his compatriot's wheel, and the two formed an impromptu alliance. In the words of Liggett, the two great rivals have suddenly got to become friends. But there was no doubt in Museo's mind that the race was over, at least for him. Even with the defending champion's support, there was no way back for the Lion of Flanders now. Everybody knows that the race was over, he says. If you lose 10 seconds and you're one guy in the big ring, maybe you can close the gap. But with riders like Cancellara, Baxted and Hammond going full gas to the finish, it was impossible for me and Van Pietegem to reach them. Would Museo have won a record-equaling fourth Paris-Roubaix had his back tyre not gone pop? It's a question he's cautious in answering. It's always difficult to say afterwards whether you would have won, he says. Before I punctured, I was still in the race and I had a good feeling and I was still in the good breakaway. The race was still happening like I wanted it to happen. I knew Baxter and Cancellara, but I wasn't afraid of them. So I think I had a chance to win. But, okay, it would be easy now to say that I will win. I'm not a rider who looks backwards after his career. I won three times. I had a chance to win more than three times. Okay, I was a couple of times second and a couple of times bad luck. But that's Roubaix. It's too easy to say, and disrespectful to the victory of Magnus, that I will win that edition. I had a chance to win. It would have been close, but it can't be just me and him. I don't say now that I should have won that edition. Back in the race and approaching Roubaix, there was no doubt who Museo now expected to see celebrating once he crossed the finish line. Magnus was a good rider, and he was also very good on the cobbles, he says. Cancellara wasn't so famous as he had become. In that moment, nobody knew that Cancellara would win Roubaix three times, and also three times Flanders and all the other Olympic and gold medals. He was still a young rider, and Baxted was a classics rider. Baxted had the, how do you say it? The figure to ride good on the cobbles. He was made to ride good on those cobblestones. He was big. He had a big potential. He was a good rider who was also fast after a hard race, so it wasn't a surprise that he won Roubaix. Twice fourth in Paris-Roubaix, Hoffman led the quartet under the Flamme Rouge and on to the final short section of cobblestones outside the velodrome. But it was Cancellara, the unheralded 23-year-old riding his second Roubaix, who led the leaders onto the track. 
the Swiss rider hadn't made it this far into the race on his debut in 2003, a race that he had failed to complete. Perhaps it was Cancellara's inexperience that saw the Fassa Bortolo rider lead from the front as they came to the bell. While both Hammond and Baxter shared the same idea of rising high on the banking so they could dart down ahead of the back straight, Cancellara stuck to the inside, regularly looking over his shoulder as he hugged the blue inside strip. Baxter had marked Hammond as the man he needed to beat, so he stuck assiduously to the Briton's back wheel. I knew that Roger was fast in a sprint. We'd shared a house over in Belgium for a couple of years and trained a lot together, so I knew how fast he was, he says, adding that Hoffman was also known for being very quick. Baxter admits that he knew very little about Cancellara, but stresses that, at that point in a long classic, speed counted less for staying power and savoir-faire, which was why, with Museo out of the picture, he fancied his chances. At the end of a 250-kilometre cobbled classic, how fast you are in the sprint doesn't actually come into play. It's what you've got left in the tank, says Baxter. On any given day, I was equally fast as the other two at least. But with Museo, if we'd got him in the velodrome, that would have been a different battle altogether. Baxter's tactic was to use the banking slope to launch a long sprint exiting the penultimate bend. It would have been a good idea were Hammond not to have had the exact same thought. Both riders dived at the same time, and Baxter ended up getting boxed in on the final bend behind Cancellara, with Hammond on his right and Hoffman coming through on the wheel of the British national cyclocross champion. It was time for plan B. And this was where Baxter's homework paid off. I'd pretty much watched every sprint from any footage I could find from the velodrome, he explains. For some reason, every rider that's leading the sprint out from the front tends to drift up out of turn four, coming onto the finishing straight. I think that must have stuck in the back of my mind. Stay cool. Stay where you are. As soon as Roger opens up his sprint, Cancellara is going to start drifting up the track to try and take Roger that little bit further around, and that is going to leave a gap on the inside. That drift would leave a window of opportunity for Baxter on the inside, a move that would have earned him disqualification had this been a track and not a road race. I ended up using the Cote d'Azur, he says, with a grin. In track terms, it's not allowed to be used for overtaking, but this was a road race, so I knew that I had the opportunity to fill the gap when the others drifted. Baxter recalls that he was around 30 centimetres up the track as he exited the final bend, enough for the downward slope to give him a little kick when he darted down and passed Cancellara on the inside. He had timed it to perfection. It felt like it was two pedal strokes for me to get past Cancellara, he says. I was in the clear, and at that point, I knew I had it. It panned out perfectly for me. I put it down to the fact that I was able to use the banking and go the shorter way. Roger was definitely going the long way around Cancellara, and Tristan was behind me. 
Hoffman took second place, and Hammond matched Barry Hoban's 1972 record for third. How did it feel when Baxter, who Sherwin quite rightly described as having ridden all day like a man on a mission, powered clear to become the first Swede to win the Queen of the Classics? It was more a process of, is this happening? Is there anyone in front of us? He says. Then the thought that I was actually getting this, the realisation that I was about to win my childhood dream race. It was a bit surreal, to be honest. It didn't quite sink in that I had won Paris-Roubaix. That much is evident from watching Baxter's reaction in the post-race melee in the centre of the track as scores of journalists swarmed around the victor. What can you say, Magnus? One reporter asks. In a trance, and with his helmet off to reveal a crew cut and a hooped earring in his left ear, Baxter simply replied, I don't know, mate. It's f***ing unbelievable. Later, a more composed Baxter in his post-race interview would say, It's been a dream my whole life to win this race, and I can't believe I've done it. The whole day just passed so nicely for me. No punctures, no crashes, and the team has done good work for me as well. Hammond, however, was stuck in two minds. The pride of having recorded his best-ever monument result tinged with slight regret that he hadn't won the thing. Interviewed by Sherwin after the finish, he confirmed that he couldn't really have any complaints having lost to a rider like Baxter. Yeah, I saw he was sprinting really quickly on Wednesday, so, yeah, I was really afraid of him. What can I do? There was no chance of riding away from him because he was also so strong on the road. So, I have to admit, the strongest guy won the race. As for Museo, Hammond only had sympathy. I just feel really sorry for Johan, he said. He's a super champion, but it's such a pity that he's had that bad luck on the last section of cobbles. But what do we do? We don't wait for him, hey. Riding his 50th monument and 15th edition of Paris-Roubaix, Johan Museo came home hand in hand with compatriot Peter van Pietergem, 17 seconds in arrears, to take fifth place. While the duo received a standing ovation from the crowd, it was the first time since 1994 that no Belgian rider had made it onto the podium. In his last major race as a pro, a born winner like Museo would have found scant consolation in the fact that he remained competitive to the last, even if his gutsy ride proved he was the classics rider of his generation. He did come up and say congratulations afterwards, Baxter confirms, before expanding on the moment that suddenly stacked the deck in his favour. It's the nature of Paris-Roubaix. Some days, the luck is on your side. Some days, it's not. A couple of years before, I came out of the last section where Johan punctured, 100 metres further down the road, and I punctured out of the group that was riding for third place. So, swings and roundabouts. I was there racing for a podium and ended up 19th because there were no wheels behind me and I had to wait until the first car could get to me. It is what it is with that race. That's why, for me, the added charm of Roubaix is that you have to have everything going for you on race day. Obviously, the better you are physically, the better you are with your equipment and everything else, 
the higher percentage of luck you end up having. But there's still a certain element of luck you need to have. So, what happened next? A year later, Magnus Baxter fractured his wrist in a crash at Ghent-Wevelgem, four days before he was due to defend his Roubaix crown. I could only ride on the turbo trainer until the Saturday, when the team told me I had to go out and ride on the road to see if I could at least ride on the tarmac, he says. I think I held my hands on the handlebars while the team car was behind us. Then, once they disappeared, I rode one-handed for a while. It was far from ideal, I'll put it that way. Without a shadow of a doubt, it was one of the more painful races I've ridden. Clearly handicapped, Baxter took a brave fourth place, coming home one minute behind a leading trio that saw Tom Bonin beat George Hincapi and Juan Antonio Flescher for his first Roubaix trophy. Belgian fans didn't have to wait long for a new lion, after all. Johan Museo, funnily enough, was not the only rider in the 2004 Top 5 riding his final Paris-Roubaix that year, although Tristan Hoffman couldn't have known that a crash in the 2005 Het Volk would draw his career to a close. Roger Hammond's podium finish won him a contract with Discovery Channel in 2005, although he would finish the next year's Roubaix over the time limit. He made five more appearances, coming fourth in 2010, the year before taking retirement. I never shied away from the fact that winning Roubaix was my ultimate goal, he later told Cycling Weekly. Of course, it's a goal that I didn't achieve, but I can look back and say that I had a good crack at it. I'd love to be able to ride until I was 60, until I finally won it. Fabian Cancellara finished in the top 10 again in 2005 before winning his first Paris-Roubaix in 2006, ahead of Bonin, the defending champion. The duo shared a thrilling rivalry over the cobbles, with the Swiss victorious three times and the Belgian four making him very much heir to Museo's throne. At 55, Museo remained stoic about how his final monument panned out. Winning your last race is beautiful. It's like a dream, he says. But it's not easy, especially in a monument. I'm sure even Philippe Gilbert would consider stopping if he won Milan-San Remo this year. I was happy that I was in the final breakaway and that I showed the level that I had before but I didn't win. There's only one place to count in cycling, and that's first place. Second and third doesn't exist. The 102nd edition of Paris-Roubaix wasn't technically the last race in Museo's pro career. Three days later, he took to the start at Scheldepries so he could bid the Flemish fans farewell. That was my final race in Belgium, he says. Roubaix was my last internationally. Scheldepriest was more, how do you say it, of an honour to celebrate the rider Johan Museo in his last race. Victory in 2004 would have put Museo alongside Roger de Vlaminck and, in time, Bonin in the race's Hall of Fame. But it was not to be. I'm happy with my three victories, he says. If I had four, I could say, okay, I'm the same level as Bonin and Vlaminck. But to win one Roubaix 
it's already difficult. To win two, it's more difficult, and to win three, it's very difficult. Here, the line of Flanders draws parallels with the 2016 edition of the race, when all eyes were on Bonin in his bid to become the most successful Roubaix rider in history, only to be denied a fairy tale fifth win by Matt Heyman. Everyone was thinking that Tom would win the sprint, and Heyman won. It was very disappointing, he says, spoken like a true Belgian. But it was very different. He didn't have bad luck. He encountered a boy that normally wasn't so fast. Heyman was very strong that day. It's always very difficult after a hard race to go to the velodrome. You don't know before who will win. Normally, it's the fastest, but not always. And on that day, Heyman was the smartest and the fastest. That's racing. That's cycling. And that's also what makes cycling history. His solitary Paris-Roubaix victory nestled between the eras dominated by Museo and the new generation of Bonin and Cancellara. Baxted certainly timed his surge down the velodrome banking and across the Côte d'Azur with aplomb. Even if, 17 years down the line, he still feels he could well have put Bonin's celebrations on ice for another season. Bonin was beginning to emerge by then and there were plenty of riders who had the capabilities of winning, says Baxted. Luckily, I managed to time everything to perfection and get it done on the day. But even afterwards, the following year, I was up there and got fourth with a broken arm. God knows what would have happened if I hadn't crashed in Ghent-Wevelgem three days before. There was definitely a good couple of years when I was very competitive in this race, so it wasn't exactly a meteor that landed on Earth. But it was definitely becoming more difficult with Bonin and the likes getting so much better. Crossing the line first in the race he always dreamed of winning had no parallels in Backstead's career, and the Swedish steamroller says he wouldn't swap the cobblestone on his mantelpiece even for a rainbow jersey hanging on his wall. Definitely not, he stresses. For me, Roubaix is the biggest one-day race in the world purely for the reason that you could do a hundred one-day races in the season, but there isn't another race that looks like Roubaix. There are lots of cobbled races that help you get used to the geography of Belgium, but with Paris-Roubaix, you get one chance every year, and that is it. For me to win, it is just so difficult to get all the equipment right, to get all the luck on your side, to make sure you're having that one-in-a-thousand-day where your legs are spectacular, and then to have a team around you that are able to help you and back you up for it, and making the right decisions at the right times. There are so many variables that need to be perfect on the day for you to pull it off. That, for me, makes it that bit more spectacular to even try to win. It's a stance even Museo, especially Museo, would surely agree with. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. This episode was edited by Ola Fisayo. 
You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete having a nice cold pint and waiting for this whole thing to blow over. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And join us for our next episode when we take a record ride through the Ardennes with Philippe Gilbert. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.